From Gimlet, I'm Alex Bloomberg, and this is Without Fail, the show where I talk with artists, athletes, entrepreneurs, visionaries of all kinds about their successes and their failures and what they've learned from both. Just a quick warning before we get started, there is some discussion of sexual assault in this episode. So if that subject can be difficult for you, you may want to skip this episode or take care while listening. As a reminder to our guests in the galleries, expressions of approval or disapproval are not permitted in the Senate galleries. Under the previous question... This is tape from October of 2018, when the United States Senate was at work on a Saturday. They were holding the confirmation vote for Brett Kavanaugh as Supreme Court Justice. The clerk will call the roll. Mr. Alexander. The sergeant at arms will restore order in the gallery. During the confirmation hearings, of course, allegations surfaced that Kavanaugh had sexually assaulted a professor named Christine Blasey Ford when the two were in high school. Republicans called it a witch hunt, a last-ditch attempt to derail the confirmation of another conservative judge to the Supreme Court. Democrats said that the way Republicans handled the allegations was demeaning to sexual assault survivors across the country. The clerk may continue. Ms. Baldwin. Mr. Barrasso. Mr. Bennett. On this day in the Senate chamber, most of the votes were predictable, along party lines. Republicans for the confirmation, Democrats against. But there were a few senators for whom this vote was not clear-cut. It wasn't a straight partisan choice. And there was one senator in particular, a Democrat from a red state, who found herself in a very peculiar predicament regarding this vote. No matter which way she voted, she was going to let somebody down. Either a bunch of her constituents or a bunch of people from her own party. And in the end, she did something that politicians almost never do. She ignored both those groups. And this came with serious political consequences. Mr. Hatch. Mr. Heinrich. Ms. Heitkamp. That senator, Heidi Heitkamp, a one-term Democratic senator from North Dakota, is my guest today. And I talked to her about that vote that may have cost her her Senate seat and why she ended up making it anyway, even though she knew the consequences. Heitkamp told me that even when she was first elected to the Senate in 2012, she was a rarity, a Democrat from a deeply red state. She'd made a name for herself as the attorney general of North Dakota in the 1990s, but she'd lost the race for governor in 2000 and had taken a decade off from politics. The Senate race in 2012 was her first time wading back into political waters. Can you go back to the night of your election in 2012 and and talk to me about what that night was like. What were, what were you thinking and what were you feeling? Well, we went into election night on 2012 not really knowing what was going to happen. And we were just basically following the returns as they went across the um, state. When we looked at polling, we knew that if the president, and by this I mean President Obama, was able to keep the gap at about 22, I mean lose the race by 22 in North Dakota, I could get elected. If, if the and president so, could keep the gap at 22, is that what you said? What, t- yeah, 22 points. So yeah. Explain what that means. Well, the, keep, well, the gap between what and what? If the president could lose by only 22 points, I could win. Any time in our tracking polls that the president started losing the race in North Dakota by over 22, 
my numbers would drop to the point where I could not um, get elected in North Dakota. Got it. You felt like I can outdo the president. That's exactly right. I can outdo President Obama in North Dakota. (laughs) And I did, actually. Now, understand it was an incredibly close race. Yeah. Um, You know, I only won by 3,000 votes. 3,000 total votes. Yeah, I used to joke that, um, you know, when I came to Washington, everybody was very curious because they just kind of thought I was a unicorn. Uh You know, someone from a a rural state who had won in a place where Obama, you know, uh, had a 20-point gap. I'm broadly curious, though, like just in terms of like where you saw yourself on the political spectrum. I I mean, I really see myself— kind of constitutionally uh, a pragmatist um, and a moderate. And how unusual, how unusual was that in, in Congress in general? I would say maybe 15 to 20 senators I would describe as pragmatists. And after her election, Heidkamp started getting to know those other moderate pragmatists in the chamber. Democrats like Joe Manchin from West Virginia and Republicans like Susan Collins from Maine and Lisa Murkowski from Alaska. We tend to be more fact-based and not ideological. Uh-huh. That doesn't mean we're without principles, but I think it definitely means that that we're not there to um, beat a drum for an ideology. We're there to get things done. And I think what you'd see is frequently when government shuts down, that group tends to meet. When, when things happen where we reach an impasse, they can play a really critical and important role. And probably the best example of that was um, the 13 shutdown. For the first time in 17 years, much of the federal government is shut down. Congress failed to agree on new funding before a midnight deadline. That means about 800,000 You know, the sabers are rattled and everybody's, you know, trying to make their points. And we're probably four or five days into this. I think the frustration of, of people who think that this is not the way to run the government, um, we're running pretty high. And Lisa and Susan pulled together a bunch of people and we were able to forge the compromise that basically led to opening government up again. I'm curious, though, as as a as a person who's wired the way you are, what is it like to be in that scenario where like people on both sides seem like it's this weird game of ideological chicken that's leading to the shutdown in the first place? What what were you? Well, what was the conversation like amongst like what, what were you and Susan Collins talking about? Did you ever go out and like just be like, can you believe this crap? <laughs> More times than I can count. Um, You know, I I think that the important thing to to realize is that there is a a big piece of um, uh, decision-making that everybody agrees on. And so I I tend to um, be very willing to listen to both sides of an argument and very willing to to compromise. And finding compromise was important to Heitkamp, even if it meant bucking her own party. Like in early 2017 when newly elected President Donald Trump nominated Judge Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Court. So a quick reminder on the context here. A year before that, in 2016, then-President Barack Obama had nominated Judge Merrick Garland to a vacant Supreme Court seat. But Senate Republicans, led by Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, stalled those confirmation hearings for nearly a year on the novel argument that the Senate shouldn't hold a confirmation hearing during an election year. The effect of this was when Donald Trump took office, that space was still vacant, and he was able to instead nominate his pick for Supreme Court, 
Neil Gorsuch, a more conservative judge. Senate Democrats tried to rally members of their caucus to stick together and block the vote. But that didn't sit well with Heitkamp. She didn't like it when McConnell held up the nomination of Garland, and she didn't want the Democrats doing the same thing to Gorsuch. She wanted to make her decision based on Gorsuch's judicial merits. Is he qualified by temperament? Is he qualified by character? Is he qualified by intellect? You know, I think that anyone would be hard-pressed to say that Gorsuch did not pass those qualifications. Um, You may not agree with him, but he is a very capable jurist. Right. But I can imagine a sense among your caucus, the Democratic caucus, that like, well, turnabout's fair play here, Mitch. You held up our appointee, and now we're going to hold up yours, or we're not going to confirm yours, or something like that. Right. I I mean, the question is, do you let two wrongs make a right? I don't think you do. And I also think that elections matter, and um, the president was entitled to that appointment barring a disqualifying event. Mm -hmm. Was your vote to confirm Gorsuch, was that popular within your own caucus? No. How did they make it clear to you that this was not a popular vote? Who Did, did oh, people you know, pulling I, you aside I, I, and saying like— I think if you're looking for some story where someone came up and put their finger in my face, I mean, that didn't happen very often. Uh-huh. Um, it, it usually works where somebody stands up in a, in a caucus and makes an impassioned plea looking directly at you um, <laughs> for why you need to vote this way. Who, somebody stood up, though, in a, in, a, in a caucus meeting and like made a plea looking directly at you? Oh, sure. That happened? Oh, yeah. Then there's usually about three, four of us that that were always, you know, the the ones that they wished to persuade. Yeah. And I won't tell you who those people <laughs> were, but I usually sat back with them. So it didn't matter. There was relief in company. <laughs> but I think I always felt like I was in a position to say, look, I haven't played these games. Yeah. You know, I haven't, I haven't uh, um, uh, it said no for the sake of saying no. When I've said no, it's with reason. And back home in North Dakota, the decision to say no to her party and yes to Gorsuch, it went over well. An editorial in the Bismarck Tribune said that Heitkamp's vote to confirm Gorsuch added, quote, to the argument that she does what's best for North Dakota, end quote. The rest of that year, Heitkamp continued to strike a balance between the president and her party siding with Trump about half the time. If you're a lawyer, if you've ever argued a position, you know, you basically have to have theory of your case. And the theory of my case was that I'm a moderate pragmatist, um, much like much of North Dakota, that I will go and make a judgment, not based on, you know, responsibilities to my political party, but based on what I think is the right thing. That was the theory, anyway, that she hoped would appeal to North Dakota voters. But in 2018, during her re-election, something would happen that would put that theory to the test. Someone, actually. Brett Kavanaugh. That's coming up after the break. Welcome back to Without Fail and my conversation with former Senator Heidi Heitkamp. In 2018, Heitkamp was coming up at the end of her first term in the Senate and campaigning for re-election. And things in her state had changed. Since her last election in 2012, which, remember, she barely won, the percentage of North Dakotans who self-identified as leaning Republican had increased. And Donald Trump was overwhelmingly popular in North Dakota. Her Republican challenger had promised complete loyalty to the president. Heitkamp had voted along with President Trump more than almost any other Democrat, but it was still only about half the time, and she'd been falling behind in the race. And then, mid-election, Justice Anthony Kennedy announced his retirement from the Supreme Court, 
and President Trump had the opportunity to appoint yet another judge. And his pick was Brett Kavanaugh. When, when was the first time you heard the name Brett Kavanaugh? Do you remember where you were? Um, yeah, I mean, it, I had gone to see the president. Um, the president um, very much wanted to make this vote bipartisan um, and, and invited me and I think Donnelly, Joe Manchin, to come over and just visit with him. And the irony was it was just a day after he had been in North Dakota campaigning for my opponent. And remember this, so we have a pick to come up. We have to pick a great one. Heidi will vote no to any pick we make for the Supreme Court. She will be told to do so. Now, maybe... But, I, you know, when the president invites you to the White House, you go. And, you know, he said, well, who on this list can you support? And I said, I don't know these people on this list. Um, and Brett Kavanaugh's name actually wasn't on the, the initial list. But a couple days later, um, the name was advanced of Brett Kavanaugh. And and so I was one of the first Democrats to actually meet with Kavanaugh. There was a, a movement kind of in the caucus to not even meet with with Kavanaugh, mm-hmm. um, you know, kind of, again, uh, the bitterness over what happened with Merritt Garland. And so, you know, we met very early on with Brett Kavanaugh. Um, you know, I guess I've said this before, and I don't ever intend to argue a case in front of the Supreme Court, so probably be okay saying this, but I I never thought Kavanaugh was intellectually the quality of Gorsuch. Mm-hmm. Um, he was more kind of a backslapper to me, um, not nearly as detailed. Um, I look for empathy. I found a lot of empathy in some of the things that I talked to uh, Justice Gorsuch about. Didn't really find an empathetic person in in Judge Kavanaugh. You said that you look for empathy. Yeah. H- how do you do that? I think you. I, I don't want to get into questions because you know. I think those are private discussions, but frequently talk about things in their life that um, that they've experienced that have challenged them and how they overcame those challenges and what they learned from those challenges. Right. What, what I think is important is what have they demonstrated in terms of their willingness to look at the other side of things and change their mind. And I actually had many conversations about that. Like, when did you go into an oral argument thinking one thing and come out and said, well, I've had my mind changed, because I think that's an important factor, someone who listen. Um, the Supreme Court decides a lot of things that are basic to human freedom and basic to humanity. And if you don't have a sense of empathy or a willingness to change your mind or a willingness to be um, uh, persuaded, I don't think you belong on the court. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, again, going back to is he qualified, he had already been confirmed for the second most important court in the United States, the D.C. Circuit, and he was the president's pick. And just as I think that the election of Obama had the consequence of making sure that he was entitled to a fair evaluation of his appointments, which is the way it used to be in the Senate, I wasn't going to deny that to this president just because I disagree with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I was inclined to vote for Brett Kavanaugh. Mm-hmm. So he answered enough that you felt like, okay, this is somebody that I can, like my, my yeah, state not, wants me to. I mean, to... I wasn't like enthusiastic. Whoa, <laughs> you know, this is going to be a great jurist. I've just found, you know, I found a new Oliver Wendell Holmes. No, I mean, no, I didn't think that in any way, shape or form. Um, but I did think that that he had met 
the the criteria. Heitkamp seemed poised to stick to her playbook, taking the president's pick into consideration with an open mind, leading to the sort of decision that would go over well with voters in North Dakota that fall. And then something happened that upended that playbook. A psychology professor named Christine Blasey Ford said that Kavanaugh had tried to rape her in high school. In a letter to a Democratic senator, Blasey Ford detailed how Kavanaugh pushed her into a bedroom at a party with a friend named Mark Judge and sexually assaulted her. The revelation shook Washington. President Trump called the allegations false and claimed that Democrats were orchestrating a, quote, big fat con job. But Democrats said the allegations raised serious questions about whether Kavanaugh was qualified for the highest court in the land. So Senate Democrats and a few Republicans insisted on an additional hearing to listen to the testimony of Blasey Ford and to hear Kavanaugh's response. Blasey Ford testified first. Heitkamp watched the proceedings closely. My experience as North Dakota's attorney general working eight years to come up with better solutions to what happens to victims of sexual assault. That experience drove my evaluation of that hearing. Brett and Mark came into the bedroom and locked the door behind them. There was music playing in the bedroom. It was turned up louder by either Brett or Mark once we were in the room. I was pushed onto the bed and Brett got on top of me. He began running his hands over my body and grinding into me. I yelled. There was no doubt in my mind she was telling the truth. What stood out to you from what she said that made you that gave you that confidence? I mean, I I, I think everybody once said, well, she didn't remember the day, she didn't remember this, she didn't remember that. You I mean, you don't remember those details, but um, I think the thing that, that she said, what's the one thing you remember? That they laughed. What is the strongest memory you have? The strongest memory of the incident? Something that you cannot forget. Take whatever time you need. Indelible in the hippocampus is the laughter. The, la- the uproarious laughter between the two and they're having fun at my expense. I know enough about survivors of sexual assault, and I know enough about trauma and what trauma does. I mean, you know, there's things that I think um, will never leave people's memory. And by the time um, she was done testifying, I just believed she was telling the truth. Mm -hmm. Did you think your reaction was going to be the same as everybody in that in that room, or was it? Yeah, I, and I think that the Republicans thought she was telling the truth. Th- then, then you started hearing, well, it happened to her, but it wasn't him. And there's no way anyone who's ever worked with survivors would say it happened to you, but it wasn't him. I mean, she knew who this was. So, as she's testifying, are you are you thinking? Like, I'm actually going to change my vote. I'm not going to do it. Or were you waiting to no, see? I was no, th- I, I was thinking, okay, I believe her. And this is incredibly troubling. And I need to listen to him. Got it. And, you know, I, I guess that's that's probably the lawyer in me, that you don't just listen to one side of the story. You listen to the other side of the story. And you listen um, for, for a level of honesty and clarity and maybe empathy. Mm-hmm. And so, I, I mean, it just seemed clear to me that um, the only right response was for Kavanaugh to explain why he wouldn't remember this event or um, 
at least provides some kind of legitimate response to what she said. This confirmation process has become a national disgrace. The Constitution gives the Senate an important role in the confirmation process, but you have replaced advice and consent with search and destroy. I saw somebody angry. Um, I saw somebody who was overly defensive, which always is a is a trigger for me. You know, the thing that that we tend to resist the most in life are the things that are truer. If it hits just a little close to home, you tend to be more defensive, and I think that's that's what you saw. Plus, you saw somebody who has decided that the way to get a seat on the Supreme Court is to be completely partisan. This whole two-week effort has been a calculated and orchestrated political hit, fueled with apparent pent-up anger about President Trump and the 2016 election, fear that has been unfairly stoked about my judicial record, revenge on behalf of the Clintons, and millions of dollars in money from outside left-wing opposition groups. Was there a um, was there a moment from the Kavanaugh testimony that was emblematic to you of like, oh, this is not what I want to see. This is the thing. This I, is, yeah. I, I, clear as day, it would be the the uh, questioning done by uh, Senator Klobuchar. You said sometimes you had too many drinks. Uh, was there ever a time when you drank so much that you couldn't remember what happened or part of what happened the night before? I, I, no, I remember what happened and... Um, when he chose to attack her. I think you've probably had beers, Senator, and, and so... So I, you're saying there's never been a case where you drank so much that you didn't remember what happened the night before or part of what happened? That's, you're asking about, yeah, blackout. I don't know, have you? Could you answer the question, Judge? I just, so you, that's not happened. Is that your answer? Yeah, and I'm curious if you have. I have no drinking problem, Judge. Yeah, nor do I. Okay, thank you. If you wanted somebody who wasn't impulsive, who thought before they talked, who was judicial in their temperament, that's not how they react to um, uh, a United States senator who was not saying anything, you know, threatening, um, who was simply asking a question. And I will say this honestly, and some people may groan about this, but I think the fact that he was completely willing to do it with a woman told you something about his character. <laughs> you know, the Republican side of this wanted to pretend that this was a criminal trial, which it wasn't. It was a job interview. <laughs> and if any person who I had the responsibility of hiring had behaved like that in a job interview, they would have been shown the door right after that. I heard that you watched the hearing again on mute. Yeah, no, I think I, I, I advise everybody who um, wants to opine about a debate to watch it with the sound off. It's, not, it's something I've done probably my whole political career because I think so much of communication is nonverbal. You know, it's the old Nixon-Kennedy uh, debate, right? If you listen to it on the radio, you thought Nixon won. If you watched it on television, you thought Kennedy won. And, and communication isn't just about what you say. It's about how you say it, um, it, it and, and your expressions and your gestures. Tell, describe what you see when you watch it with the sound oh, Just red-faced, angry, you know, wild-eyed. 
I, you know, it was, it's, it's quite striking. And, you know, what you look for in a Supreme Court justice is a calm demeanor, is a, is a kind of rational person. And, and people would say, oh, well, you know, what did you expect of him? He was, um, you know, being accused of this horrible thing that he, he alleges he didn't do. And I said, well, if you're, you know, neighbor Joe, I expect you're going to be angry. Um, but if you're trying to be on the U.S. Supreme Court, I expect you to understand that you have an obligation to acquit yourself in a way that's not threatening, that's not angry, that is rational and reasonable. That's the responsibility of a Supreme Court justice. And you cannot watch that with the sound off and not be frightened by watching this man. Heitkamp had come to a difficult realization. She's going to have to vote against Kavanaugh which meant voting against the wishes of the majority of the people in North Dakota, putting her Senate seat and the Democrats' hopes of retaking a Senate majority in jeopardy. You're in the midst of this big re-election campaign, and you're an underdog. Did anybody on your staff try to talk you out of it, you know, just Mm-mm. sort of like talk to you about like, well, the politics of this decision? No. I, I, I did have other members who tried to talk me out of it because they understood the polling in North Dakota. What kinds of things were they saying to you? They're saying that there's no way you can get reelected if you vote this way on Kavanaugh. And what would you say back? I say I don't care. That's a that happens pretty rarely in politics, doesn't it? I don't know. I don't know. You know, the job is pretty miserable, <laughs> especially now. You know, I. I I think that um, it's a it's it's a selfish thing what I just said because you've got to live with yourself at the end of the day you've got to think did I go there and do the right thing you have to make a decision and that there isn't there isn't a job in the world that's worth your own self respect and and so you know you have to be able to say. I, I cannot vote that way, regardless of uh, political outcomes. You know, when, when in 2000, when I ran for governor, I was diagnosed with stage 3A breast cancer. The doctor at the end of my treatment said, well, you have about a 28% chance of living 10 years. That was 18 years ago. And so, you know, you have an opportunity every day to live your life the way you believe will make your children and your husband proud. And that's not taking a, you know, an easy vote on something as important as the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. When you decided to vote no, how, what was going through your head? Well, that in a vote this important and that I knew that was being highly watched, there would have to be an explanation to people in North Dakota. Coming up, in the final days of our campaign back home in North Dakota... Heidi Heitkamp has some explaining to do. Welcome back to Without Fail and my conversation with former Senator Heidi Heitkamp. After Heitkamp decided to vote against confirming Kavanaugh as a Supreme Court justice, political donations from around the country started flooding in for her, an outpouring of support from Democrats and liberal activists across the country. But back at home, she was about 10 points behind in the polls, and her opponent was using the vote to make the case against her to say to voters that Heitkamp was just another Democrat who would vote along party lines. Heitkamp needed to explain her decision to the people of North Dakota. 
we did a political ad, and there was a conscious decision on explaining the vote. I'm Heidi Heikamp, and I thought you should hear exactly why I voted against Judge Kavanaugh. I wanted to say I believed Judge Kavanaugh lied at his hearing. Honestly, I don't think he told the truth. And even if he did, he showed himself to be too biased to be impartial. I approve this message because I believe a senator has to put politics aside and do what's right for our country. But you knew also that he that your vote would not be popular among your constituents. Yep. And, you know, this was the greatest example that my opponent could show where I was, you know, with the mob, so to speak. What were the after effects, like in terms of its impact on your race? Talk about that. You know, people you would meet in a parade um, who would talk about how disappointed they were. Mm -hmm. I had a guy come up to me. He said, you know, I think you've done a great job. I think you're a great person. You know, I I just can't vote for you because you're one of the mob. And they weren't talking about just Democrats. They were talking about what they saw during the Kavanaugh hearing with women protesting. And people saw this as a partisan vote on my part. It's it, it, Your theory of the case is is the exact opposite of I'm with the mob. (laughs) And I think part of what the dynamic is, is you're trying to keep it tethered to the facts of the case here. And like, here's this person who's just not qualified, but he came to represent so much more. So your no vote on Kavanaugh felt to people almost like a betrayal somehow, that you joined forces against them, your constituents. What do you think what do you think was the betrayal that they were seeing in you somehow? What, what, what was that about? Many people said, well, look, you know, you said you were going to go do what North Dakota wanted you to do. And, um, you know, North Dakota, if you looked at a public opinion poll, ha- supported the confirmation of uh, Justice Kavanaugh. How could she possibly say she represents us when she took a contrary vote on a vote that's important as a confirmation vote? And I couldn't argue it was an important vote because I think it is. I think it is a critical vote. Mm-hmm. And so, look, you know, I'm there to exercise my judgment. Uh, my argument was this isn't a decision just based on what you taking a public opinion poll uh-huh. yesterday. This is a decision you're making for 30 years. There's no do-overs. It's right. not like passing Dodd-Frank and saying, oh, we need to do some fixes for small community banks. I mean, that, that you don't have that choice in a confirmation to a lifetime position. Right. He's going to be on the court for 30 years, at least. And, and, and you know, and what does that say to all the women who came forward who had so many stories that were as believable as Dr. Ford's. Guys, I got a call to make, uh, and this will not surprise most political observers. Heidi Heitkamp, the Democratic incumbent, goes down in a deep red state, North Dakota. That's a bigger deal than just uh, one Senate seat, Savannah. That's number 50. Okay, number 50 for the Republicans. They get it back. Yes. They will retain control. It's official. Even if they lose the rest, you go on to lose your reelection bid. Um, And I want to just talk about what to make of this all, because like one of the things that you said earlier was, you know, around the Gorsuch vote, you wanted to be remembered as the person who doesn't play the games, Mm -hmm. who doesn't play politics, who does make every sort of decision on the merits. 
And you can look back and sort of say like, look, I'm not that person. So when I make a tough vote, you know, people will know I'm not that person. I'm not doing it politically. In this case, that didn't seem to matter at, at all. <laughs> nope, it didn't. <laughs> I mean, you know, you know, it, people always say they want people who, you know, vote their conscience. And look, you know, electoral results would tell you that's not what people want. People want somebody who's on the team, who's loyal no matter what. And, um, you know, we become polarized and people will blame Washington for polarization, but the public's more polarized. And and I think we all need to accept that and understand that the public's gotten more partisan. Mm-hmm. I think that there is more partisanship among the population right now than I've ever seen. Huh. How does that make you feel? Well, it, it makes me feel that that we've failed, that that um, people like me have failed. And I, I, I was basically asked, you know, what's the one thing that you would— um, do if you wanted to change what's happening in American politics. And I would say the moderate middle has to engage and become politically active because right now political activism is on the far extremes. Hmm. It's it's so interesting, I think, when I think about political trends, like when Barack Obama first burst on the scene, it was the same sort of call. It was like there's no... Red America, there's no blue America, there's the purple America. And that was such a compelling idea to people back then. People wanted to believe it so much. And then the minute he took office, it seemed like, oh, no, but we can't compromise at all. We can't agree at all. And everybody has their own um, explanation for how that happened. But it did feel like there's this sort of dual nature in American politics where it feels like that that idea of like we are more alike than different everyone and and we can compromise on things can be this very compelling political message but there's also something about us that we don't like it <laughs> i don't know that that's true i i mean i really don't i think that that hopeful optimistic message actually carried um uh, president obama forward the thing is is that it's not enough to have the excuse that, well, I couldn't get it done because Mitch McConnell stopped me. Um, I think it's really important when you promise that you're going to provide leadership that people see that leadership happens. And, you know, my argument is you got to be honest about what you can deliver. I mean, I think the important message, if if I were running for president, would be tell people you know, what you're going to do and how you're going to get it done, not just what you're going to do, but how do you get that done? Frequently what I tell people is they say, well, what do you think should be a theme? I said, make government boring again. <laughs> <laughs> Remember when government was boring? But, you know, but people I don't, didn't want to even think about it. But I think it's like there is this sense of like, um, I feel like never in my lifetime has a moderate message felt more out of touch right now than where things are. Someone needs to be full-throated moderate, and then we'll see. Right. It's funny, though, because it's like you're wanting somebody to sort of like become a proud, outspoken, loudly voiced moderate. But a moderate is about (laughs) sort of being like, well, let's see what the options are here and let's be pragmatic (laughs) and sort of to tell order. I'm I'm a loudmouth moderate. (laughs) I talk about it all the time. So so I don't I mean, I don't I mean, why aren't you running for president? 
No. I, why aren't I? Yeah. <laughs> because I don't want to go on a stage and get booed. <laughs> no. I mean, you know, I think I think that that this is it, this is an opportunity I think for someone right now to really seize the moderate middle. Since her Senate loss, Heitkamp has tried to activate that moderate middle. She's putting her leftover campaign funds to work on a project called One Country, which conducts political research on the interests of voters in rural America. Heitkamp says the goal is to help Democrats craft a message for 2020 that can beat President Trump in the rural states he won in 2016. For more information, you can visit onecountryproject.com. Without Fail is hosted by me and produced by Molly Messick, Rob Zipko, and Hiba Elorbani. It is edited by me and Devin Taylor. Music and mixing by Bobby Lord. Special thanks to Dave Thompson from Prairie Public Radio. If you like Without Fail, follow us. You can get every episode for free through Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.